Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Anne Boyd Rue. Anne is the author or editor of seven books, including the indie bestseller Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. And this is an audio medium, so you can't see me doing jazz hands with my copy of the book with its torn cover. <laughs> but we are fans on this end. Anne has won four National Endowment for the Humanities Awards, two for public scholarship. She's appeared on NPR and BBC Radio. And her writing has appeared in the Washington Post and Lit Hub, among many other publications. She has a PhD in American Studies, and she was an English professor at the University of New Orleans for over two decades. Dr. Rue, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Peyton. How are you? I am just lovely, and I hear that you're on your own European tour, a la Amy. How's that going? Yeah, no, it's been going great. Yeah, I'm in- I've been all over Europe. I had a professor, I think it was my first or second year of the MA, and the class was on realism in American literature. And we read Huck Finn, and then right after that, we read Little Lemon, which I thought was nice. And it just, even though I was probably about 22, 23, and okay. it came at a really good time for me, yeah. seeing the girls grow up and make their choices in life, because I was trying to figure out what paths my life would take. And mm-hmm. Joe was such an inspiration to me. I'll never forget reading that at the end of the book where she says that she still hopes to be a great writer someday, but thinks she, that her book will be even better for having these examples around her. And she's like gesturing to her family and to the boys at the school. And I was thinking, what a novel idea. I've never heard that before, yeah. that actually having a family and raising a family could make you a better yes. writer rather than a worse. Because it always seemed mm-hmm. to be this give or take for women. And so that was exciting. And I ended up writing my dissertation on four women writers, sort of looking at the generation she belonged to, really the first generation of American women writers to be themselves as serious artists. And this is, of course, Emily Dickinson's era. And Alcott, yeah, had a very, very serious high ambitions for herself. Mm -hmm. And she won a lot of acclaim earlier on in her career. And then when she wrote Little Women, the whole the children's writing just took off and that turned out to be the most yeah. lucrative and she pretty much stuck with that. But yeah, Alcott was one of the four. And then I wrote a biography of one of those four, Alison Swedermore mm-hmm. Wilson. And then I found my way back to Little Women. So yes. I liked that idea of writing a book about a book because I had read some books like that. And what book would I write about that anyone would really care about reading? It's well known enough. And I thought, well, of course, Little Women... And so it was, so it brought me back. So that's, this project brought me back to Little Women. And I realized the 150th anniversary of its publication was coming up. Yes, so I, yes. Yeah. So I kind of just hit the ground running and cranked this book out in time for the anniversary, you know, so that happened a lot faster yeah. than my previous books. But yeah, it brought me back and it was perfect timing because my daughter was the right age to introduce Aww. Little Women to, and she had a huge impact on the book. For oh, anyone who reads the, it, yeah, I think you'll be able to that. tell, especially that final chapter. The last two chapters, maybe, but the final chapter in particular, where it's like, do girls still need yeah, yeah. Joe today? Yeah. Yes. So who are yeah. the who are the literary heroines and television and film that speak to them yeah. today? 
so many of the ones that my daughter was drawn to were mm-hmm. clearly influenced by Joe Marsh, which is yeah, really absolutely. cool to see. Yeah. So there's a whole lineage. Yes. I mean, I just, I learned so much about the book, about its just huge, wide ranging impact all over the world. I didn't know what an international sensation it was to see it show up. And Elena Ferrante is my beautiful friend about these two girls growing up in Naples in yes, the 1950s. Oh my God, yes. And it's like this pivotal moment for them when they get that book and they get little women and they read it to rags. And there's a beautiful quote where she talks about how they just read it and read it till it was falling apart. <laughs> and yeah, they wanted yeah. to be Louise May Alcott someday. <laughs> so one of them does become a writer. The other one does it. So anyway, it was a wonderful journey. And thank you for bringing me back to Little Women because I haven't been with it for a bit. So it's nice to come back. Yeah. I Again, I just loved your book most for so many reasons, but it's you did something really interesting, which is not necessarily, you're looking more at the afterlife of the book in culture and how it's been received over the years. We've talked in the episode with Sarah Shulman, we talked about kind of the history of how it's been perceived by feminists. And initially as this <laughs> got a very, I guess there was an assessment of it in the 70s that was very negative. And then it came back around to like, actually, this is a feminist text. And now today we're sort of looking at it even as a queer feminist and trans feminist text, which is very interesting. And I loved also, this is something that I think about a lot is your final chapter, wanting to be Rory, but better. You sort of go (laughs) through the history of all of these. I'm seeing Belle from Beauty and the Beast. I'm seeing Elsa from Frozen. I see Hermione, Katniss Everdeen. I see the girls of HBO Girls. Like you're doing a really robust overview of everything, like basically 150 years of literature and media for young women depends on little women which is something my next novel is like a contemporary interpretation of little women and one of the things i've actually struggled with is okay if joe march never existed and i'm situating her in 2023 then who does she look up to because (laughs) without the original joe march like you said 150 years of this cultural dna so what books is she reading who is she looking up to because right right it's it's a fun problem to have that's fascinating yeah because she can't have read about Joe March, huh? She is Joe exactly. March. <laughs> she is Joe March. I have her in the library and I'm like, okay, what books is she checking out? And I'm like, she's in that one. <laughs> so that's not going to work. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Really love your book. We've cited it many times on the show. I have your annotated Little Women as well, which I like refer to constantly. So, with that in mind, which March sister are you? And keep in mind for the purposes of this show, Lori is a March sister. Yeah. Well, I'll be boring and say Joe. So boring just in the (laughs) sense of everyone thinks they're Joe and wants to be Joe. (laughs) So I don't really identify with Amy. Mm -hmm. Don't identify so much with Meg. Joe, I definitely identify with, but I wasn't as much of a tomboy as she was. But I definitely, no, it has to be Joe. Definitely. I mean, I was thinking some, yeah aspects of best that I really relate to. But it really, even though I didn't think of myself as a tomboy, the whole idea of growing into a woman's body and becoming a lady, which in the 1880s wasn't the same as it was in the 1850s, 1840s for her, but it still felt like Mm -hmm. such a straitjacket and such a confusing time and such a, you know, and I think this is something that she doesn't really address, but I felt very much that growing up in a woman's body made me less safe in the world. Yeah. So revisiting the book gave me a real opportunity to look at that and kind of yeah. figure out why. 
So it really was a deeply meaningful book for me to write, as I think all my books have been, because we were drawn to topics for a certain reason, because we're working through something. And yeah, yeah. so that writing the book really helped me work through a lot. And just as reading the book does for people, you know, you read it every year and you see new things in it. And I would say, as I've gotten older, of course, Marmy's become a figure that I very much Mm -hmm. identify with too. So I guess Joe and Marmy. (laughs) <laughs> Joe and Mar- I love Joe that. Well, they have so much in common too. I mean, yeah. you could argue Marmy is the original Joe or the Joe who didn't maybe get to do as much as Joe did, right? Right. Certainly in real life. Yeah. 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 May Alcott was- She inspires Joe. Yeah, exactly. Abba Alcott, the real life Marmy was like, I will vote if my daughters have to carry me to the polls. You know, she was driving yeah. a lot of the family's abolitionist and suffragist politics- so absolutely, we love Marmy. And I think you are the first person to say Marmy, which is lovely. And I, I love that. <laughs> You'd be, not everyone says Joe. We have a, the, I would think the majority is Joe, but it's a smaller majority than you might think. We have some very passionate Amy's, some very passionate Bess, even a few Megs. Our last guest, Stephen Ira, was like, my boyfriend is a total Meg. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting is that my daughter's, she just started at Bryn Mawr this fall, women's college. Mm-hmm. The majority of students are gender nonconforming. And they, I saw something that the English department had posted on Instagram. Like they did a poll in a class of which yeah. little woman's sister are you? So I don't really? know what the class was or what they were doing. <laughs> but almost everybody said Meg, which blew me away. Whoa. Not very many people said Joe. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. That, yeah. I would I love to dig down surprised. into those stats. Why is the majority, is it Emma Watson or what are we, what are we feeling? Suddenly yeah. Meg's cool now. Is Emma Watson played her? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I think something that, and we will get to the chapter, but I think something that we've uncovered, something that we have uncovered in this is that there's a very kind of sexual freedom to Meg that sort of gets written out. In the last chapter, we discovered like a full-on fade to black sex scene. <laughs> John Brooke shows up and she's wearing his coat and she spins around and by the end of the paragraph, she's pregnant. And it's like, oh, that that's interesting. So I think the megasance is coming. I think we're ready to reassess Meg. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I think that's what, it's just like a liberated sexual being who's trying to make a really egalitarian household. I think that's- Yes, I think Meg is yes. so important. I'm sure you had the opportunity mm-hmm. to talk with other guests about her chapters, but what's probably yeah. one of the coolest things about Little Women is that the stories of these girls don't just end at the altar in the case of Meg. Yes. She yeah. gets married halfway through yeah. and we get to see that marriage develop. Mm-hmm. And so there are these wonderful things there about partnerships and mm-hmm. raising kids and how to sort of yeah. figure all of that out. They're really quite progressive. Yeah, I agree completely. How radical to not end with the wedding and riding off into the sunset, but be like, okay, today I'm trying to make jam and it's not happening and I'm crying and my husband's I bringing home that. friends without telling oh me. And managing a household budget is a nightmare. Like it's, okay. we don't get that as young people. Yeah, when I when I read <laughs> the book again after, after being married, I definitely mm-hmm. identified with Meg in the jam chapter. Yes. Hugely identified. So yeah. So Meg too. Absolutely. Yeah. Come okay. to think of it. Yeah. Yes. Joe Meg and Marmy. <laughs> Joe Meg Marmy, yeah. JMM. Okay. Yeah. So before I ask you to recap this chapter, Dr. Rue, I want to read a poem by Emily Dickinson. I was just doing a course on Dickinson and Whitman, and I was reading this poem as I was preparing for our talk today. And it just seemed so 
disappointed reading the events of this chapter. So what soft cherubic creatures these gentle women are. One would as soon assault a plush or violate a star. Such dimity convictions, a horror so refined, of freckled human nature, of deity ashamed. It's such a common glory, a fisherman's degree. Redemption, brittle lady, be so ashamed of thee. So that's that for mm. me is Joe entering these social spaces <laughs> and trying to be a lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and with that in mind, would you please recap chapter 29, Calls? Oh, okay. So, yeah. Well, the chapter starts with Amy saying, okay, let's go. And she was like, where are we going? She says, remember, you promised <laughs> me that you would go on these social calls with me. I think they have six, six calls they're supposed to make. And Joe's like, oh, okay, fine. And she gets ready to go and she's wearing something very practical. And I think it's money outside. Mm-hmm. And Amy's just horrified. No, we have to dress up. We have to present ourselves, right, to society. And Joe is just like battling this, but she ends up convincing her that she to do it. And so she's kind of doing it as a favor for Amy more than anything, right? And it's interesting to see them getting along, you know, at this stage in the book, because, you know, considering some earlier earlier conflict between them when they were younger. So, and of course that happened between... Louisa and May as well. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm deviating from the summary. And then what there's prettiest pictures, I think is what Hannah says as they're getting ready to go out. Yes. So Amy has helped dress her up and make her into this beautiful picture. And so they go on these calls. And the first one, Amy warns her to be genteel, right? To be a proper young yes. lady. Yes. And so Louisa's like, oh, I can do that. I can play the part, right? It's like she, she takes mm-hmm. this on as kind of an acting role to play the part of the child what is it the calm and quiet cool young Mm -hmm. lady and she's so cool calm and quiet that people think she's haughty because she won't say anything (laughs) so when they leave amy's horrified and so tells her to liven up a little bit so Mm -hmm. so the next house joe is like okay i'm going to be the charming young lady i can play that role too and of course she overdoes it in the other direction and Overshares. <laughs> Overshares, exactly. Starts telling all these stories. Overshares about Amy, <laughs> not <Yes>. about herself. <laughs> but basically, it's like doing this really interesting thing where she's letting them peek behind the facade that they've created mm-hmm. and to point out the ways that Amy has fabricated her image in such an artful yeah, way yeah. that they weren't even aware. So there's so much interesting stuff about the performance of gender roles in, in this chapter. It's perfect oh, for thinking about that. And then what happens? Oh, of course, Amy's horrified. And she just kind of washes her hand of her and says, the next place, just do whatever you want. <laughs> so she has a grand yes. time. I think she plays with kids. She gets all muddy. Mm-hmm. And the conflict that comes out of that call is that Louisa has snubbed, what is his name? Some guy whose uncle is the... Oh, yes. Someone is the descendant of a British royal or has royal Mr. relatives. Tudor. But it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of a distant remote thing. It's like his uncle's cousin. Yes. It's married to a lady, a British lady, yes. and whatever. Yep. So they have this super interesting conversation, which we can talk about afterwards. Yes. I'm looking at it right now, but go on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. About what is the right thing to do in a situation like that, where she paid, she was kind to this poor young man, but snubbed <laughs> the, what the distantly related to a lord guy and then they go call on aunt march and aunt carol and this is the decisive visit right because joe is yep she's kind of had it and is letting her 
the facade has been dropped completely. She's not playing any sort mm-hmm. of a role. And what ends up happening, of course, is that Amy is the one who gets chosen to go to Europe because she is so pleasing. And nobody wants to be around Joe because she's a grump. <laughs> <laughs> so she she ends up having... So, so this is what is so cool what Alcott does is that she shows the ways that performing these roles, you're better off if you perform these roles yep. because Amy gets everyone to like her and she gets to yep. go to Europe and yeah, Joe she pays wins the price. The- <laughs> yeah. Joe pays the price of not conforming yeah. and being her true self. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. A couple of times during that summary, you you just full on said Louisa does this, Louisa does that. I was like, I, I Did didn't I want to really because I I think <laughs> it's so telling. Well, because I really yeah. see this. Yeah, I think I really saw this mm-hmm. chapter. It's just a really nice sort of encapsulation mm-hmm. of her relationship with her younger sister May, which was a complicated yeah. and very interesting relationship, right? Because May oh, got yeah, completely. Yeah, May got to do the things that. Yeah that Louisa didn't. She was the baby in the mm-hmm. family, the pet. Everybody loved her and yeah. adored her. And she was so pleasing and kind. And obviously there was a lot of jealousy there. Yeah. What did she say? May always gets the cream of things. I think it's something that she said in one of her diaries. Yeah. yeah. And she kind of beat herself up, Louisa did, okay. about not being able to be a sweet <laughs> and pleasing yeah. as Amy or as May. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they did come to really respect each other. I mean, May yes, did in the later life. Yeah, May did the illustrations for the first yes, volume she of, did. of the yeah the first part of Little Women, <laughs> and she and for the proceeds of Little Lemon, Louisa took her to Europe and got her yeah. started on her European art career. Mm-hmm. And she became the Aunt March to to May. Yeah, she was the patron. Yeah, yeah. she became the patron, no. and so she created opportunities for Amy that for May <laughs> that she didn't have for herself necessarily. No yeah. one was giving her these things, and she had to work hard for mm-hmm. them. And that that contrast always created a sort of tension between them mm-hmm. that I think is quite fascinating. And then, of course, May's story and so tragically, there's I just. To me, the most amazing thing Louisa wrote was Diane and Persis, which is an unfinished novel, <laughs> sort of thinking about what May's new life as a wife and mother and oh. artist was going to be like. And she didn't finish it, of course, because May died shortly after giving birth oh. to her child. So, yeah, tragic ending. And Louisa Rose raised the little girl who was named after her, Lulu. Lulu, yes. We love yeah. Lulu. So she became I, a mother after all. Yes. She was aren't we or are we? <laughs> that was she signs all these letters are dot we because I guess that was Lulu's pronounced attempt to pronounce aren't Louisa. Oh, is, that's so cute. Yeah, yes, that's sweet. It's charming. One of my yeah. favorite letters by Louisa is that she writes to a newspaper after they publish an obituary of May, and she's like, "You got everything wrong." <laughs> she just writes this beautiful, glowing, oh, like wow. admiring yeah. two pages of my sister was the best person in the world. So clearly, mm-hmm. the differences they were able to resolve over time. I think, it- yeah. And the Amy that we see in the first part of Little Women is she's a little kid still, and yeah. she gets under Joe's skin. But as we see in this chapter. She grows into an impressive young lady. And oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe, Joe's doing favors. Joe wants to make her happy. Joe's doing things for her. And they've learned to, especially after Meg got married, 
I'm just blanking on her name, Anna, in real life after Anna got married. So I really believe that Louisa and Anna were supposed to be the spinster aunts together, helping take care of their parents as they aged. Yeah, they kind of did. Yeah, and Louisa's... <laughs> they wound up that way. But. Yeah, and Louisa's minds, right? They were going to grow... They were both going to be single because Anna married so late. It was unexpected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason that Louisa took it so hard. Yeah. And yeah. she really felt like losing her other half. And then, but, you know, he, her husband died, but then they, she, they had, she had the little kids that she had to, mm-hmm. two boys. Yeah. Yeah. And Alcott says, I must be a father to these children. She immediately was like, this yeah. is my rule. So, We're going to yeah. co-parent these kids. Yeah. 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 And so... Yeah, and provide for them financially, which mm-hmm. is kind of her role in yep. the family. She was the breadwinner. But yeah, so after that, May and Louisa were thrown together much more and spent so much time after Lizzie died, too. She already died. So interesting, because they're like oil and water, yes. right? Yes, um, yeah. And this chapter is, I think, really interesting <laughs> for, as kind of an interesting coda, I guess, in a way, to the chapter where... Amy Burns, her manuscript and that whole thing, which yeah. is, of course, such a meaningful part of the story. And that's been in all the films. But this chapter, nobody pays yes. attention to it, right? Yeah. Well, the Maya Hawk Little Women, they had, it was a miniseries, so they had more time. And they do this scene. There's a great shot, memorable shot of Maya Hawk with Aunt March's parrot trying to look very formal. And so, so that one does do the calls chapter. But you're right. This is something that gets left out. It's sort of a, stepping stone on the way to Europe and on the way to Joe kind of going her own way in life. So it sort of get it gets rushed over. But I think it's one of those chapters that's like a microcosm of the whole. It just mm-hmm. really neatly gets a lot of the novel's themes across and this contrast between these two characters. Like you said, I think it's just such a it really spells out the gender role difference <laughs> between yeah. these two characters. Yeah, yeah. It really does. And I was sure. thinking about I think it was Simone de Beauvoir who said, right, mm-hmm. that a, a woman, yes, a woman is not born, she's made. And this, that's really, I mean, you know, feminist critics have talked about this book in those terms. And certainly Simone de Beauvoir loved this book too. And yeah, I think this chapter is just perfect for thinking about that mm-hmm. because it's not just about putting on the clothes, right? It's about your whole personality. No. Yeah. It has to be, it, it's who you, how you present yourself to the world, but you know, for someone like Joe, it's impossible. Yes, yeah. To it's... put it, to put on the mask and to wear the dress and be the charming young lady, mm-hmm. even though she tries to perform it as if she were acting this role. Right, it's just perfect. Which... Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and of course, Louisa was a great actress, and she loved to yes. act, as did Anna. Loved yeah, to act. yeah. And also would believably act and pass as a man, like at costume parties or the time right. she tricked Julian Hawthorne. Right? Right. She was like, I'm the Alcott's male cousin from England. And Julian completely <laughs> went along with it, right? <laughs> I'm reading this scholar, Mary Sheldon's dissertation about just cross-dressing in the 19th century novel. Mm. And the point that she makes about Joe is that cross-dressing, quote unquote, for Joe is actually crossing into comfort. It's more natural for her. It's suggesting yeah. that maybe the everyday yeah. dress is a cross. And I think what we see here is yeah. Joe trying to cross dress. <laughs> but 
Equally, yeah. we also see that there are veneers in Amy's femininity. Amy is really embarrassed when Joe talks about how Amy loves to ride horses and break horses and ride bareback. She's like, you can't, that's <laughs> yes, not she, ladylike. She was, you can't yeah, say she that. was most fearful of being, mm-hmm. being considered a wild young woman, right? Yeah. Lose your reputation mm-hmm. if you ride, you ride a stride, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah so, I, mm-hmm. yes. And Amy, even though the facade or the performance suits her better, and she's better Mm -hmm. at it, she's able, it feels more natural to her. Alcott is still showing us the ways that they have to, the ways that it is a performance for her too, especially because of their so-called poverty. And I say so-called simply because (laughs) the Alcott girls experienced a much greater poverty than the March girls do. But the idea of painting her boots and things. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because she pulls it off, right? She does it so well. And yeah. all the other girls were like, oh, wow, I had no idea. You know, they look so, so fashionable. But that's how she keeps up with the other girls. Yeah. And that is Amy's great struggle, it seems. There's also <laughs> the chapter, right, where she hosts the party. Yes. Yeah, we just did it that. It doesn't one. <laughs> happen. Yeah. That's a really She's great. so hard. Yes. Yeah. It's a great moment. I thought it was cut, would come up in this chapter, but it didn't. So I looked for it and it happened in that chapter, which I think is 26, where she talks about Joe <laughs> with her elbows sticking out, going through the world, yes. going through life with her elbows sticking out. With your nose out. in the air and your elbows sticking yeah. out. Yeah. And I just love that image because when your elbows mm-hmm. are sticking out, well, it's like you're taking on, you're, it's, like a, it's like a stance of strength, right? Yeah. It's like yes. you're, and, but yeah. it's, it's also this idea that you're like, you're not going to, Past people easily, you're always going to be butting into them, right? You're just going to yes, crashing your, yeah. your way through. And that mm-hmm. is totally Louisa and totally Joe, right? So it makes her life more difficult, but it means that she also is not accepting things the way they are. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a mm-hmm. more manly position maybe too. I don't know. Yep. Try it's to a think. gentlemanly fashion. I can say. see grandma doing that to like scold the kids, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's not a genteel young lady pose at all. No. So, no. Yeah. So I want to kind of go through, we'll do like a gender role inventory of the chapter. But another thing I want to, before we kind of go move by move, I want to think about armchair diagnosing Joe in this chapter. I think I noticed a number of things that to me rang as potentially, you can interpret this as like an autistic Joe from the way that she's, like, we've talked about performing gender roles, but I think to it, or acting, but I think we could also, we might also use the word masking for the way that Joe kind of tries to put on these roles and hide her real self and still doesn't get it quite right. And then when she is just fully unabashedly herself, it's just off-putting and unpleasant to everyone. We mm-hmm. learn that one social visit is enough to upset her for a week. She has no idea how she's going to make six calls in one day. By the end of the chapter, we hear that she is sitting apart, rocking herself, self-soothing or stimming. Really? So, like, ah. yeah, I took note of those things. And they seem to me, we can think about, I know that Dr. John Madison and you also, I believe, like you've talked about maybe thinking about the mental health of Louisa May Alcott and what she may have been dealing with. And I, I just thought it was, it, it kind of jumped out at me here. I don't, I haven't read much on the possibility of reading Alcott's archive from an autistic perspective or reading the book from an autistic perspective, but I felt, I think that interpretation is really possible here, that six calls in one day. Yeah. Yeah, certainly maybe, I guess the term neurodiversity is coming into my head. Yeah. 
is it ADD? You know what? It could be something right, that she's right. right. Like she's not processing things uh-huh. in the same way or in the uh-huh. way that's expected of her and yes, not being able to fit in. Yeah. I like that you're calling attention uh-huh. to that because it does seem to have more things to do with than just gender. It's not just about gender yeah, and the performance yeah. of gender, which is of course, you know, how the book is always discussed that there's such layers to her and her feeling of difference in the world. Uh-huh. That I, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not something that I considered. I mean, I wrote the book, it came out in 2018, which already yeah. seems a lifetime yeah. ago, right? Five years. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the world has changed so much in the last five years. Uh-huh. And when I was writing it, of course, I finished writing it in 2017 because you have to uh-huh. finish writing a book, you know, a yeah. year as it goes through production. So there wasn't trans discussions weren't happening as much. Although, sort of, gender nonconformity certainly was. And I, but, you know, and my daughter hadn't uh-huh. quite reached that age where her friends were really starting to challenge the idea of being a girl. Uh-huh. And that kind of happened like two years later or something after yeah. I published the book. Yeah. But I definitely, I think those kind of discussions would be really interesting to have. No, I sort of went out on a limb in my discussion of Beth in the book. I was, I, yes, you do really fascinating work on Beth. Well, about what her, well, thank her you. illness, quote-unquote, might yeah, be. Yeah, I don't really know how people have responded to that because I haven't, nobody said anything. And I do know that I think for purists, right, it's not uh-huh. going to ring true. But uh-huh. I, I do see a lot of signs that Lizzie was starving herself to death. And it's quite possible yeah. that was the source of this mysterious illness that she possessed. Or, you know, that it was a mind-body situation. And we're dis- uh-huh. we're discovering so much more how the mind and body are connected, right? And that the experiences, whatever the body is manifesting, it almost always is starting in the mind. There's so much we don't, yeah. we really don't know yet about the relationships between mental and physical health. So I feel there's, I feel there's a lot more to understand about Beth. But in terms of Joe, I like this idea, thinking about her processing things differently and certainly her lack of, what's the word I'm trying to think of, the sort of social niceties (laughs) and not really being able to do the civil, as they called it, doing the civil. Doing the civil, yeah. Yeah, that's such a struggle for her. It seems it could be more than just a preference of hers, right? Or like a- Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, or an attitude. Yeah, but it's definitely this idea that you know, when one person is sick, it brings the family together. And this was a family on the verge of collapse and disintegration so many times. Yeah, yeah. Even in the novel, we see that. There's so much, there, whenever there's discord, you know, about this, what is it, birds in their nest agree? She's yes, like saying a little, little thing where, birds in their nests agree. Yeah. <laughs> She's the peacemaker, the glue that holds them together. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's a so heavy much. Burden sometimes. Yeah, heavy burden. You know, another way to look at it maybe is that she's physically manifesting the sort of sickness that is kind of at the heart of this family that a sort of sickness that Alcott was not able to explore overtly in the novel, right? I mean, she, Bronson Alcott gets a huge pass <laughs> in the oh portrayal boy, of Mr. March. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she yeah. loved and revered her father. Uh-huh. You know, it's complicated when the when it's the people you love and the people who are supposed to be taking yeah. care of you are kind of, are maybe doing a lot of harm too. And so, yeah. and the way that Beth and Lizzie also couldn't, wouldn't share her journals. She's yeah. like the only one who wouldn't share. And so it's not just about her shyness, I think. It's definitely mm-hmm. something more going on with her that was not well understood at the time. And I think we still don't understand yeah. very well. No. Yeah. These things. Yeah. yeah 
these gaps in the archives, I mean, they're, you must feel as frustrated as I do, right? That there, there just isn't more to pull from there. But no, I think, yeah. I think that like your insight there is, is really important in the way that we understand Beth and maybe thinking of Beth as mentally ill in addition to just ailing from this physical sickness. Setting that aside for the moment, I would love to do kind of a rundown of the gender moments in okay. this chapter. Okay. So I'll begin with the very beginning of the chapter. Joe was particularly absorbed in dressmaking for she was Mantua maker general to the family and took a special credit to herself because she could use a needle as well as a pen. And what's interesting here is how duties like nursing and sewing take on a masculine cast when Joe is doing them. Here, dressmaking is more about that she could use a needle than it's about style or fashion or femininity. And when Amy finally pulls her out the door, we hear that Joe is putting away her work. So here, dressmaking is a, it's work. It's using a needle. It's, it's like a trade, it, the way that it's written. It, like, it's very much not about art or style. <laughs> it's yeah. work that she's doing. And I think yeah. that's interesting. It's another way that, that she supports the family. Yeah. Yes. And we were talking about this in the chapter where she sells her first novel and all the things that she buys for the family with the novel. Some of them are like dresses and bonnets and whatnot, but we get the sense that there's real utility for those things. Like it's not Meg blowing $50 on silk. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. <laughs> Which we right. had the biggest argument about that last week because wow. Steve, I did the inflation calculator and- like, it worked out to something like $1,500 wow. of silk. Wow. And my guest was like, well, like, if you go to Bergdorf's and buy a dress, and I'm like, Stephen, that's not. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. But again, like a very different attitude here toward dressmaking. So, yeah. And speaking of clothes, basically, Amy says, you can't go out dressed like that. <laughs> she says, I'm right. Why not? I'm neat and cool and comfortable, quite proper for a dusty yes. walk on a warm day. So it's dusty, not muddy. Yes. But yeah, they're going to get dirty. She's being practical. Yeah. If people care more for my clothes than they do for me, I don't wish to see them. You can dress for both and be as elegant as you please. It pays for you to be fine. It doesn't for me. And fur belows only worry me. And <laughs> fur belows being like frilly petticoats. So it's this outright refusal of any kind of performance of femininity Amy does win this debate. <laughs> like she does get Joe to right. kind of fancy up a bit. But right. Yeah. Purple you know, those, I think are like all the little pretty decorations and yes, things, like the frills, frills or, the ruffles and bows. Yeah. 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 And all of that, of course, is just decoration. Mm -hmm. It's not part of the garment itself. And you can tell that if Joe is the mantua maker of the family, she's making mm -hmm. them the practical garments. She's not. Yes probably yeah. doing the finishing with all the little frilly things. No, it's safe for doing so. that, right? Yeah. 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 So there's, and there's, a, there was a really mm -hmm. interesting dress reform movement in the 19th century that sort of cropped up before the war, but then after the war again, and it was trying to remember if Alcott participated in that after the war. So I'm thinking maybe the 1880s or so. Mm -hmm. It might've been earlier, but there women started, the dress reform women started dressing more plainly more functionally. It wasn't necessarily about wearing pants or bloomers, yeah. but it was about dressing in a practical manner to suit the occasion and not be a slave to fashion and follow. So a lot of women writers, you see them either participating in it or vocally or not. <laughs> it yes. is, yeah. I think from what we know, I think it was a letter where she's saying, oh, you should see what May did to her bonnet. 
I'm content with like a plain bonnet. May needs to add like flowers and bows and everything to it. So I think you I don't know that she was yeah consciously associated with the dress reform movement, but we know that she loved practicality. We know that there were like specific clothes she wore to be comfortable when she was writing, right? So mm-hmm. what stands out to me here is if people care more for my clothes than they do for me, I don't wish to see them, which is there's a real understanding of the way that putting on clothes is putting on an identity. And yeah, the clothes yeah. that you would have me wear are simply not me. It's also about participating in these social hierarchies, right? Because Amy mm-hmm. tells her you could talk so well, look so aristocratic in your yeah. best things and behave so beautifully if you try that. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Key there for me is if you try. Yeah. Right. Yeah, if you try. And like, then she, you, you she, have to work at it. <laughs> but go on. Yeah. And then she maybe appeals to her mm-hmm. more masculine side by saying, I'm afraid to go alone. Do come and take care of me. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's such a good point. She's like, I need an escort, please. I like, I need someone to guide yeah. you, right? And- yeah, but so this idea of looking aristocratic <laughs> in your best thing, that's almost as important <laughs> to May as yeah. the gender element of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or Amy. And then I'm just going to keep confusing the Oh, name. I know. We'll just be doing yeah, like Joe, May, Louisa, Joe, Joe Louisa, Amy. May, Amy. Yeah, but- it's all the same thing. <laughs> What's so funny is like immediately after she's like, oh, do I can't go alone. Come and take care of me. And the way that Joe responds is <laughs> like, you're, you're right, an artful puss to flatter and we don't, well, I'll go. I'll be commander of the expedition. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> when she like reframes it as like, you kind of take on the more masculine role in this situation. Joe is like, and all of the blindly. Yeah. Yeah. Land-like submission, we're told. And that's maybe like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She says it with a sudden change from perversity to land-like submission. So again, it's her playing a part. Yes. Yeah. Right? So, okay, mm-hmm. I'll be. Yeah. It's not her nature to be lamb-like and submissive, but. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, so yes. And then when they're heading into the first house, you said that Amy instructs her to be calm, cool, and quiet. And Cho says, yes, I think I can promise that. I played the part of a prim young lady on the stage, which is very like, I'm not a woman, but I play one on TV. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, right. So it's exactly the same thing. It's this very conscious thing of like, I am acting. I'm playing a role. The topics that are being discussed at the Chesters are parties, picnics, the opera, and the fashions. And Joe has... We got the sense, even if Joe wasn't being a little shit and like deliberately misinterpreting Amy, <laughs> might just sitting there and smiling and not saying anything. Well, she's she also, have much to say about parties or fashion. I think in her exaggerated performances too, she's also mm-hmm. she's also commenting on how silly these roles are. Yes, yeah, and it's yeah. not about taking pl- it to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. So she's not just like tweaking mm-hmm. Amy or trying to get under her skin. <laughs> it does seem to be like this. She's not going to play it perfectly, although she probably could, right? Mm-hmm. But she, yeah. and she's always been, she's always been one for melodrama, right? <laughs> for Van's yes. gestures <laughs> and the plays that she wrote. Mm-hmm. So I can, see, yep. yeah, I can see that here too. And then in the next scene, we have Amy's like, okay, no, no, you did it wrong. Just be sociable, be charming. And Joe turns it up to 11 and says, I will have horrors <laughs> and raptures over any trifle you like. And she turns it. And Amy felt anxious, as well she might, for when Joe turned freakish, there was no knowing when she would stop. So like, Amy and me just like, uh-oh. What interesting thing. As soon as they enter the room, Joe kisses all the young ladies with effusion, which is, I mean, 
What are we to make of that? We hear a lot of stuff about interpreting Joe as a lesbian. What does it mean here that she's kissing all the young ladies with effusion? Is it too much what she's doing here? What do you think of this, mm. this moment? Yeah, no, I mean, because she says, I'll imitate what is called a charming girl. I can do it for I have Mae Chester as a model and I'll improve yeah. upon her. So, mm-hmm. yeah, she's probably, I don't know, I kind of see it more as just the exaggeration of that role. I think what's also more, what's more interesting is noticing the ways that Joe is bumping up against gender and sexual sexuality conventions when she's being herself, as opposed to when she's playing yes. a role. Yeah, but possibly maybe she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll take this opportunity to, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, since I'm playing a role. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Like even in the letter she wrote to Alf Whitman about the costume party where she dressed up as a monk, she's like, everyone thought I was a man and the ladies flirted. And like we, so we get this uh, yeah. being part of a role sort of liberates her to yeah. flirt. Right, and right, certainly yeah. like women would kiss one another on the cheek when they greeted on one another. So it's not necessarily hard evidence, but I think it's interesting that we see it here because otherwise contrast it when Joe was going into the party at the beginning of the book with Meg. And she's like, I don't, don't make me talk to the girls. Don't make me go near the girls. It's only yeah. when she's playing the role that she can like bring herself to be kind of more physically intimate. Right. Well, that's yes. interesting. I like that. So then she fumbles the ball by saying, Amy painted my hat. So we don't have to go <laughs> out and buy them. <laughs> and that bothers, that bothers her. She gets a compliment on her writing and says, my book is garbage. I read it because it sells and ordinary people like it, which is so, that's just Joe being a jerk. She gets a compliment on her writing and is like, actually, my writing is terrible. And people who read it have no taste. I think she's talking about some of the writing that she didn't take much pride in. Yes, we read a story of yours. Yeah. Yeah, some of her like thrillers or the sensational <laughs> stories or something. Yeah. Or something, because she was very conscious of, again, that was a, form of role-playing that she did as an author. Okay, now I'm going to be the children's author. And now yeah. I'm going to be. And what's so interesting, going back to the idea of Amy not wanting to be seen as a wild young woman. Yes. What's so interesting, and this is something I discovered right at the end of my writing of the book, or I would have made more of it. So I was able to sneak uh-huh. in a couple of paragraphs about it. <laughs> But at the Concord Free Public Library, there are two manuscript chapters of Little Women. Yes. And no one, mm-hmm. I had not seen anyone talk about them or in any way significant. So I had, you know, mm-hmm. I hadn't really been aware of them. And then I, when I went to look at okay. them, just kind of out of curiosity, I found these really interesting differences between the manuscript and the published version. And I think what we see her doing in just mm-hmm. in those two chapters, even, is toning things down, taking yeah, things big time. Th- yeah, mm-hmm. to make things more, make the novel more suitable for children. And the one, one of them is the one where Laurie proposes to Joe and he, yeah. he kisses her violently in the manuscript. It's like, what? What do you mean he kisses her violently? And I know that's a 19th century expression for passionately. Right. But, but... you know, an expression of passion, that doesn't, that doesn't have a place in children's books. So that comes out. No. And then also it, the other chapter was the one where Amy was in Europe and yes, Flory, she's a flirty yep. young thing in the manuscript mm-hmm. and doing all kinds of wild things. Yeah. She was a Daisy yeah. Miller, to be sure. Before there yes. was a Daisy Miller, by the yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the book preceded Daisy Miller, I think, by 13 years. But yeah, so Amy Amy gets toned down and made more proper. Yes. <laughs> she just had one suitor. Yeah. One, one suitor instead of 
a bunch. Like, yeah, right? instead of a bunch of men following her around and serenading yeah. her because she's such a dark No trips flirt. to the casino for Amy. Yeah, Sorry, right. no trips to the casino for Amy. Right, you know, we, right, we talked right. about it's a forthcoming chapter where I discuss actually oh, right, your yeah. notes on that manuscript. So oh, okay. look forward to that episode because we've already got, we've literally already gotten into your notes there. And I mean, this is relevant to this chapter is that in the original manuscript of the chapter where Laurie proposes, after she refuses, Laurie says, you'll find someone and fall in love with them. And Alcott crossed out them and wrote him. And mm. that to me is very interesting. I don't know what we're to make of that. That's not something I noticed at the time because people weren't talking about using a gender neutral pronoun, really. Mm-hmm. Or at least I wasn't aware of it. So that's very interesting. Yeah. And obviously not in the sense of like a modern day they, them, but even just the fact that the original pronoun was more ambiguous and I I don't think anything that explicit would make it into little women, but. No, and she didn't make very many changes to that chapter. No, no. So yeah, it's one of those moments where you wish you were like in her head and like looking at what she's thinking. Yes. We could only guess. We could only guess. No. Yeah. Yeah. So to that end, when we're on the the next call and Joe's like, okay, what are my instructions this time? And Amy is just so pissed off (laughs) after the way Joe has fumbled these visits. She says, just as you please, I wash my hands of you. And Joe says, then I'll enjoy myself. The boys are at home and we'll have a comfortable time. Like she is explicitly more comfortable around other boys than girls. She gets an enthusiastic welcome from three big boys. She listens to their college stories with deep interest. So what's interesting here is that there's, it's not just being around men. It's this longing to go to college. And I wonder how much, Mm. I think Joe did want to go to college, but, you know, as much for being educated as for the male socialization aspect of it. And this fantasy of like when Lori's friends come home from college, they like her, but they don't love her. Like she just gets to fully be one of the boys. And I think that's really telling here. She's happiest in this whole chapter when she is just being welcomed warmly by these boys and one lad proposes a visit to his turtle tank and she's like, yes, let's go look at the turtles. Like, she, <laughs> she went with an alacrity just, which caused mom to smile upon her. I know. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, she's turtles. sitting on the grass. <laughs> Joe sat on the grass with an encampment of boys about her and a dirty-footed dog reposing on the skirt of her dress, her yeah. state and festival dress. And yeah, yeah. it's just... It was such fun to hear about Lori's Larks, capital boys, aren't they? I feel quite young and brisk again after that. It's a sense in which, like, womanhood makes Joe feel old and depleted. Whereas in childhood, where she was allowed to be a little more boyish, she got to feel young and brisk. It's this thing you brought up earlier about, like, growing up into a woman's body and how that's frustrating for everyone. And maybe especially for someone who, like, feels what we might call today gender dysphoria. It's like, Mm -hmm. I actually am way more comfortable among boys. <laughs> right, yeah. And I feel younger, brisker, more myself. I want to go look at turtles. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful okay. scene for thinking about Joe and her gender identity because okay. she's letting go of the trappings here. So there's one kid who's cloaking turtles with Amy's parasol, which she borrowed. And there's another kid <laughs> eating gingerbread over her best bonnet. So she's just okay. like... She's sort of shedding the, a third is playing ball with their gloves, right? It's like she's giving these things away. So they're turning them into toys yes. almost. Yeah. yeah. And really dismantling the sort of the trappings. It's really more than a costume. It's almost like a straight jacket. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And, it, and Joe is clearly more than just unable 
to play this role. Sure. She resents having to play it, you know? Oh, completely. Well, I was just thinking that she, it's a very strong reaction that she's rejecting okay. it, actively rejecting it, and almost enjoying making light of all of these things um, that she's wearing and handing them over to the kids. And she has yeah. no respect for gloves and bonnets and parasols and all that shit. She yeah. cares about the kids. She cares about the dog. She cares about the turtles. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love the way that you phrased it as like, she's, she's turning them into playthings or toys. It's literally like there's a dog using her skirt as a bed. Parasol is being used to poke turtles. I don't know how good that is for the turtles, but <laughs> right. Yeah, and and yeah. we're soiling all the these objects of womanhood in play and leisure. And it makes me think about how even today, the clothes that little girls wear are like more constricting and maybe more limiting for physical movement than the clothes that we make boys wear. Like you can't, if you're a little girl and you're wearing a skirt, you have to yeah. sit a certain way and hold yourself a certain way so that no one's seeing your underwear. Like you can't climb trees, right? There are things that boys clothing quote unquote enables you to do that girls clothing it's still considered improper so it's interesting to see it here just being literally dismantled and used for play and leisure yeah uh, i read this really fascinating thing once that a mother wrote i guess it was like an opinion piece <laughs> that she wrote about the fact that girls clothing does not have pockets yes boys like- <laughs> boys have pockets girls don't get pockets and what does this tell mm-hmm. them about their relationship to the world? Because you know what kids do is they like to pick up things, mm-hmm. right? They like to carry them around in their pockets. They pick up little <laughs> something they discover. And if a girl doesn't have that, then her clothes become about what looks good and not about yeah. their function to the person wearing them Completely. and helping them sort of engage with the world in a sort of hands-on way. Instead, it's really just about something that's pretty. And I think that the way that girls are dressed and boys are dressed and the way that girls and boys are offered reading material and toys from a very young age, it's just, I mean, the gender diversion just, I mean, it just splits so rapidly. It just, I mean, it happens in the womb. (laughs) We want to know the yeah. sex of the baby. It's like determines everything, yeah. right? Or something. That is so ingrained. And I think one of the most important things we can do moving into the future is dismantling those differences yeah. because it does a disservice to everybody because it can't be yeah. a spectrum. Gender can't be about personal preferences. Mm-hmm. It can't be about it, especially who you are. And we're so limited mm-hmm. by the crap they sell in the stores to wear for clothing. I feel it as a grown woman. I'm pissed half the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like the pockets thing doesn't go away when you become an adult pockets in women's clothing. Yes. They're They're much smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say conversely, because this is something that has become frustrating to me after transition is I used to just throw everything in a giant purse and sling it over my shoulder. Now I feel I have a handbag, but I feel very self-conscious when I wear it. Okay, so I can have pockets, but I can't have a bag. <laughs> and that's, that's a totally self-imposed, self-imposed and, you know you what know, restriction. But, but you, it's funny because if <laughs> you go to Europe, you'll see men wearing, men carrying bags. Yeah. They're more masculine. They look different yeah. than a purse, but they're carrying, it's okay to carry a bag. It doesn't have to be a backpack. Mm-hmm. Men are always like, yes. you gotta have everything in a backpack. <laughs> and then I can't have a bag hanging on my shoulder or Right. Cross body, you know, strap that in and of Very itself silly. is somehow marked as feminine, which is bizarre. And also European men will wear scarves, okay. which 
I think are a very wonderful accessory. And I do not yes. understand why scarves have to be feminine. There's so much no, fear, so much protection of what is masculine. Yeah. And it's just seems to get tighter rather than anyway. Yeah. That's a whole no, other so discussion. I mean, <laughs> we're having this, oh, back in the day and the petticoats were like, yeah, today pockets, <laughs> man purses, man purses. It's scary. Yeah, pockets and man purses and scarves and just the, the way that children's clothing is sexualized. Girls' clothing is sexualized. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. 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 We're still very much not, like, even reading into, like, some of the very strong reactions to my theorizing about or interpreting Joe is trans or Alcott is trans, the really upset reactions, which are, like, in some ways even more hostile than Alcott encountered for saying these things back in the day, right? I think maybe the progress in these past 150 years is maybe a bit slower than we might think. So yeah. we're nearing the end of the chapter. I don't want to keep you too long, but we have this discussion about the boy with a royal cousin. And well, Joe is not yeah. impressed. Yes. Joe says, that does not impress me much. And Amy says, you need to be polite to him. And Joe says, but I think girls ought to show when they disapprove of young men. And how can they do it except by their manners? Preaching don't do any good, as I know to my sorrow, since I've had Teddy to manage, but there are many little ways in which I can influence him without a word. And I say we ought to do it to others if we can. So that's interesting enough. And then what Amy says yeah. in reply is, Teddy is a remarkable boy and can't be taken as a sample of other boys. What do we take from all of that? Yeah. Well, I think Lori is definitely presented as, or Teddy. <laughs> I guess when he goes to school, Teddy, he's Teddy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely a fifth sister. And he's not like other boys, and he never was. I mean, that was no, clear from no. the first time they met. And I think, I think Laurie is such an important character mm -hmm. in the book and gets, gets overlooked. It does seem, yeah. one thing that interests me is the way that Joe's relationship to boys evolves. She still loves boys, like younger, yes, young yeah. boys. Lads. And she, yeah, and she becomes a motherly figure to them. And so she <laughs> develops this mothering sort of relationship with Lori, which is, of course, also a way to forestall any sort of romantic yeah. intentions on his part, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So clearly they feel comfortable with each other. So comfortable with each other and a large part of that is they're both being themselves in ways that make them not like other girls and boys. But yes, yeah, this idea of them, a romance sort of developing between them, it almost feels like Joe didn't even have, or Louisa didn't even have that in mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's writing the story here that Louisa mm -hmm. Alcott did not have that even in mind. And it wasn't until the, all those little letters were coming from girls saying mm -hmm. they wanted Joe and Lori to marry. And she's like, screw that. I am, there's no way yeah. they're marrying. But did she have to make Lori fall in love with Joe? Because that whole part of it just seems, I guess he, well, he talks about them being bashing around London and just being almost like their friends. Mm -hmm you know, and not really, yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem like a romantic thing. It's difficult. I think maybe, I think for Lori, it's about wanting to be part of the March family and the obvious way to yeah. do that because something that gets looked Definitely. over is Lori has this very strong bond with Marty and Lori is an orphan and his yeah. grandfather has limited interest in looking after him emotionally. Wow. It's true. Yeah. And Joe's already become a mother to figure to him by the time that he yeah. professes his undying love for her. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that yeah. 
I think their relationship, the way it evolves is very interesting. And yes, unless you have something more to say about that passage, the next mm-hmm. couple of paragraphs yes, to go. me are so important. Yes, that's when, I, that's when I really had light bulbs going off. And I was just like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, here we have Amy and Joe are just the oil and water. Yes. Let's get into it. Okay. So Joe says, so are we to countenance things and people which we detest merely because we are not bells and millionaires, are we? That's a nice sort of morality. So by playing these parts, we're doing the social thing. And the Alcott girls definitely go up with the idea that morality is something that is not what is socially acceptable. Yes. There's often a divergence between those things. And the fact that Amy's wanting to conform so much to social etiquette, I think, is, is a real problem. For Joe, and they're really rubbing up against, because Joe got a much stronger dose of her father's transcendentalism growing up than yes, yeah. Amy, or than May, I guess, and the mm-hmm. real world people. So she says, I can't, Amy says, I can't argue about it. I only know that it's the way of the world, and people who set themselves against it only get laughed at for their pains. I don't like reformers, and I hope you never try to be one. Well, what is, yeah. what are the outcasts except reformers, Joe, yep. <laughs> as much as the rest of them. And Joe says, I do like them and I shall be one if I can. This is her with her elbows out again. For in spite yep. of the laughing of the world, in spite of the laughing, the world would never get on without them. We can't agree about that. For you belong to the old set and I to the Ooh. new. So that's what's so yep. cool is that the reformers are actually the new ones. Amy's trying, Amy's being traditional, even though she's the younger child and mm-hmm. she seems like she would be the more new one she's not she's adhering to these right. sort of old standards and she says you will get on the best but i shall have the least time of it i should rather enjoy the brick bats and knitting i think yes <laughs> this is like perfect louisa matt this is louisa may alcott yes <laughs> in a nutshell <laughs> yeah yeah my notes on this passage one of my notes was sometimes louisa may alcott just pops through the text and starts mm. stabbing people and this is one of those times like she's yes exactly it <laughs> really is yeah you know, she's she's giving yeah. us a little moral lesson and it's so succinct this weaving of gender and class and like these broader reform movements into one sort of thing and she's like look mm. this is all of a piece and yeah. your adherence to femininity is old school and it's anti-reform and this is where the progressivism is. it's saying that i'm allowed to have any opinion about a man that i wish it doesn't matter that i'm whether i'm poor or rich right, right? Or whether I'm allowed, I'm being it doesn't matter that I'm, yes yeah. or rather than being a lady like i'm allowed to it's quite radical to say if i don't approve of what a young man is doing i am allowed to show it right and but this is the thing this is the thing that really i think it's so interesting, right? Because she's mm-hmm. acknowledging that to be accepted as a woman, you must please everyone. That is your entire yes. job is to make other people yeah. like you and be pleasing. Now, if you want to change anything, then you are going to have to put up with some brick bats and hooting. You're going to mm-hmm. get pushback. You're not going to be yep. liked. You will be cast out. And Time immemorial, women have been taught that if they are unladylike, they're not lovable. No man will yeah. love them, yeah. right? Joe, of course, doesn't care about that. And right. that, I think, is also part of what makes her such a radical character. She's not just saying, yeah, I'd rather hang out with the boys. She's saying, I actively reject this model of womanhood that not only would make yeah. my life easier, yeah. but I'm going to go against it in such a way that my life is going to be more and more difficult. And I know that. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's really 
It's fascinating. It's one of the things that I admire most about her. She doesn't care if people like yeah. her, <laughs> right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. So She's amazing. willing to be disliked. Yes, if, it, if it's yes, and that's true to herself. That is where women's power comes from. I think. Yes, it's like once yeah. you decide not everybody has to like me, mm-hmm. then you can finally be yourself and speak your mind, which many of us don't really yeah. figure out until later in life. So now. This conversation is located specifically, and they're having a conversation about this young man. But I mean, what do we make of the fact that we're getting this lesson at the end of a chapter? It's not just trying to get along with and please men, right? It's getting along with and trying to please other women. So how does that factor <laughs> yeah. into yeah, the, like, old the sense that Joe is, the old yeah, she's being uh-huh. yeah, oppressed by other women to a degree, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. And of course, yeah. Joe, Joe does suffer because of this position. Mm-hmm. And this attitude towards things. And that's why I think it's really useful to read all the way through Joe's boys, right? And not just mm-hmm. stop with little women because she, she, what she's trying to do here in the 1860s is she's the feminist movement hadn't really, the women's movement, as it was called then, really mm-hmm. stalled out during the Civil War and hadn't quite gotten going again. Mm-hmm. And so there's such a vast difference between 1868. And I think it's 1880 that Joe's Boys comes out, right? Yeah. So that's only 12 years, but it, it's a huge uh-huh. difference in the what the women are able to say, the way women are portrayed, what they're talking about. I mean, it's it, this conversation is really, you kind of get a sense that, well, the women, women's movement hasn't even started yet. And yeah. we see in Joe's Boys that it's going full steam. <laughs> Which is so great. Love that. Yes. Yeah. And she got much more involved toward the end of her life. We even, we read some skepticism about the women's movement in Little Women. We have some, there's some allusions to like making fun of suffragists and whatnot. And I think Alcott really Mm -hmm. came around or grew up to a degree after the book was published. But I think another interesting thing, just as far as the thing about the women's movement was that it involved working with other women and persuading other women. It involved persuading the old set, right? And that was something that Alcott really struggled with. And even when she is full steam ahead suffragist, you know, she writes like frankly misogynistic things about like, I couldn't get women to come up to the suffrage meeting because they all just want to knit and make cookies. And it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> right. She's impatient. She's impatient with Amy. She's impatient mm-hmm. for change. And she resents the fact that so many women are content to stay where they are. And I can understand that. She's a volatile creature. Joe, Louisa. Yeah. Yes. Joe slash Louisa. Yeah. Exactly. What are we to make of the fact that after this stunning speech about reforming and being possessed to burst out with some particularly blunt speech or revolutionary sentiment, Joe gets punished at the end of this chapter pretty hard. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. She loses the trip to Europe. Right. There's no reward for the reformer, uh-huh. for the non-conforming girl in 1868. Uh-huh. And she's tamed, so to speak, but she's also allowed to speak her mind to an audience of children, to young girls. And yes, clearly Joe has had a major impact on the way that girls see themselves growing up. Yeah. And has created not only a whole slew of female characters in literature, but women who have grown up wanting mm-hmm. to be Joe 
And it's really remarkable that to me, that probably one, well, certainly one of the most famous girl characters in all of literature mm-hmm. is a girl who doesn't even want to be a girl. Yes. Know? And yeah. what does that say? What does that say about the state of girlhood, right? And what's interesting to me about Little Women isn't how it ends. It's how it gets there. And it's the tensions in the book. I think there's, I think of the chapter where I quote Marco Jefferson calling it a divided house of a book, you know? Yes. Oh, big time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To me, Mm -hmm. that is what makes Little Women so rich. And it's not about figuring out what is it ultimately saying, what is the message, as what are all the things that it says, all of the debates that are happening and discussions that are sort of happening that are that mm-hmm. create this wonderful period of tension. I mean, the 1860s were a time of great tension. And I think as mm-hmm. when I was looking at how the book was read over time, it was interesting to see the ways that it was picked up again at times of tremendous tension mm-hmm. around World War II or World War I, World War II, the 1960s, the late 60s, early 70s, the feminist movement. And it really resonates for people, I think, when we're thinking about change and how the world is changing and how maybe we want it to change or don't want to change. But this is a, it's a book, it's a book entirely about change. It's about girls growing yes. up. It's about transformation. And the question is, what sort of change do we want? And the girls have different yeah. views on that, Right. And that's what I think makes it such a rich text. It has something for everyone. And there's a rich conversation going on such that you can do an entire podcast looking at it chapter by chapter. I mean, the ability, I mean, to look deeply at a text the way you're Mm -hmm. doing, it has to be a really rich text, right? And And that it is. It's a very rich text. And it's still frustrating to me that it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's reduce it's a reducify. It's not word. It's like it's re- yeah. It's viewed very reductively. I'll say yeah. that. Yeah, it's the idea that it has a message, or it's just a girl's book, or whatever. No, it is this fucking rich book. <laughs> All this stuff yeah. going on. These girls are growing up. It's a book of contradictions. As much as you said, Joe is a maybe the mo- the most famous girl character in all of literature, and doesn't want to be a girl, and yet she's surrounded by her sisters who all. You know, they're all in the same conditions, but they never express the kind of sentiment about not wanting to be girls. They enjoy their girlhood. They enjoy their womanhood. They enjoy Amy loves fancying up these hats and the boots. Meg love enjoys getting married and making that work. I don't know that Beth is enjoying girlhood very much. Well, you know, I think like we we're... see, I think we see Mug, str- Meg, not Mug. We see Meg struggle with yeah. what it means to be a woman when you're married and have a little kid. And yeah. Because then you are really expected to live up to an impossible ideal. And so mm-hmm. for me, when I was young, you know, in my 30s, but I was getting married, having a daughter, Martha Stewart was all the rage. <laughs> she was the paragon of domesticity, right? And so I learned mm-hmm. a lot from her about how to fold sheets and shit like that. But it's the idea that you need to play this role perfectly, and it is a role and it's so important because okay. you have little lives that you're bringing into the world and what have you. But it's you're trying to do it all. And of course, yeah. now that also includes having a career for women. Thank okay. you. But for Meg, it was <laughs> trying to do it all at home even. And that was it proved to be untenable. And it's just so wonderful when Marmy comes and tells her, you don't have to do it all. Let John yeah. into the nursery. 
and share yes, some of these like- things with him <laughs> and share his life with him. And wow, mm-hmm. a revelation. So I guess I was just saying that I think the way Meg develops as a character is pushing against an idea of what a woman is supposed to be like. She doesn't mm-hmm. just naturally slip into those roles as a wife and a mother. Yeah. It's a struggle. Yeah. No. And she has to redefine them a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even with Amy here, we see the gears working when she, she's not just giving advice to Joe, like she's saying this approach for these people, Amy has studied, Amy has worked, Amy knows how to be in these situations and it's not, it's enjoyable for her, but I don't get the sense that it's natural or easy. I get the sense that she's very good at it. And like, even in the end, when she wins the trip to Europe, essentially part of that is like, she speaks French. She has acquired a language (laughs) and Joe hasn't managed to do that, right? So we get a a good sense of like the work that's involved here as well. It's interesting that the most feminine character, Amy, we still see it as a performance for her. And also she's very conscious of it. She's very aware of it. She's not Maychester. She doesn't just disappear into this femininity. And for her, it is also about art. It's about... Yeah. Dressing up and doing these things is about aesthetics as well and beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing her develop as an artist, of course, it's sad because she decides she can never be one of the old masters. So why paint? But Jesus, plenty of, (laughs) there's plenty of room for being an artist and not being an old master. But so, yeah. So I'm not entirely sure about where Amy ends up, but she, I do think she's not a conventional feminine character in a book she's not she has dimension to her and of course seeing Florence Pugh play her was the most sublime thing she's the only one who's ever gotten Amy and being able to portray her from a young girl to a grown woman and of course then everyone started falling in love with Amy because Florence Pugh really inhabited (laughs) her and brought her to the screen in a way no one has before which was nice to see because I do think I do think Amy's an interesting character it's funny how in the past, like in the 90s version, it was like, okay, we're casting a child for Amy in the first half and then an adult woman. <laughs> it's like, oh, we can't have anyone so carry that. Yeah. Like, Elizabeth Taylor was just horrible going from the That's young the- to the old. And then in, in the Catherine Hepburn film, what was the name of that child actor they used? They sort of solved the problem of her having to grow up by, by making well, Amy older in the first book. Yeah. So, oh no, not the child actor. The child actor played Beth, who then became the youngest, and Amy was older. So, Beth stayed young, and the older, Jean Stapleton, I want to say was her name. And yeah, she was filming, mm-hmm. she was filming the young Amy, you know, when she was actually pregnant. The actress was pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> so was, they had yeah Joan Bennett, you're exactly right. Yeah, jo- she was Joan fully Bennett. pregnant the entire time she was playing Amy. So she's wearing these big frilly pinafores to, yeah, to, try to, to like, cover it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she even in that when she couldn't really pull it off mm-hmm. as well. But anyway, difficult Florence role. Pugh is amazing. Yes, we love Florence Pugh. And I will say she looked great at the Met Gala last night. She was rocking a very cool look, strong look <laughs> from Florence Pugh. And Timothy Chalamet and Laurie. Oh, loved him. Yes. Brilliant. Love Timothy Chalamet as Laurie. (laughs) And Sir Sharon and of course, they were were all amazing. Yeah. We have great endless wellspring of appreciation for the Greta Gerwig film in this house. Yes. Well, people write to me sometimes and ask me what I thought of it because I finished my book and they're like, oh, she's talking about that. (laughs) 
or the BBC film adaptation, yeah. the series, because I hadn't, mm-hmm. they hadn't come out yet when I wrote the book. But, yeah. Yeah. But I did a lot of interviews, but I didn't end up writing and publishing anything about the Gerwig film. But I do talk about it in some interviews, but it is the best mm-hmm. adaptation by far. And it's certainly, it's certainly, a, it's an adaptation that speaks to our age as much as, as much as it does the original text. And that's just the mm-hmm. ideal thing for an adaptation to do. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Dr. Rue, it's been so lovely having you here today. Where can people find you online? Where can they buy your books and support your work? Well, I have a website, anboydrew.com. Mm-hmm. I also have a Substack, a Substack newsletter. Letters from Anne is what it's called on Substack. Ooh. And been writing about my travels mostly. So, I've been going through this big transformation away from being Dr. Rue, actually, <laughs> and oh. you know, not being the academic anymore and beca- being a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I think Louisa has had a big impact on me in that sense of, you know, been a lot of time studying women writers and being inspired by them and understanding, you know, how it was that they did what they did in a time when women weren't supposed to be writers, you know, and or express themselves or any of those things. And so I just have such tremendous admiration for them. So Louisa and the other writers that I've written about are still very much with me. But yeah, I'm moving away from academic writing. And yeah, so that's where I am online. My website is kind of a mess and I don't know, is needs to be updated for kind of the stuff I'm doing now. But if you, <laughs> yes, it's all there in my newsletters. So kind of what's still all going right. on. Yeah. So anboydrew.com and subscribe to Letters from Anne. Uh, get Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy wherever fine books are sold. I can certainly vouch for it. And as always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my novel, Both Sides Now. You can also find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. Follow us there for Florence Pugh Met Gala commentary, our thoughts on the Kylie Jenner, Timothy Chalamet situation, which in my opinion never happened. <laughs> All the important basics. I, we've had this wonderful literary discussion. Now let's get into celebrity gossip. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>